and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Tasha Robinson. And Minute 96 begins with Ripley continuing to talk about how Burke would get the alien through quarantine, and ends with Ripley noticing that aliens don't fuck each other over for a goddamn percentage. Oh, man. You get a big line to finish this minute out. It's nice. Nice, clean minute, as we'll see today. And yes, folks, that's Tasha Robinson back with us again, co-hosting with me for the second time this season. This is your third appearance on the show total. Uh, thanks for coming back, Tasha. Oh, absolutely. I, I intend to be on this show in short, controlled bursts. It seems very thematic. It, it seems like. And I did. Uh, I should mention that you're the co-host of the Next Picture Show podcast. You're also the film and TV editor at The Verge. Uh, congratulations on that. Uh, and let everybody know, what are, you, what are you guys doing over at the Next Picture Show these days? Uh, I guess still the same theme, obviously. but Yeah, the theme is always take a new film and look at an older film, a classic film, generally a pre-1980s film, and see how the two compare, what the two have to say to each other. Most recently, we did uh, Blade Runner 2049 and Blade Runner and kind of compared, uh, you know, thematically how they work. Obviously, there's a lot of narrative parallel there because one's taking up the other story, but there's also just a lot of uh, thematic and conceptual parallel. So it was really fun picking that apart. Nice. And yeah, I guess that'll obviously, uh, those movies will obviously be of interest to many of our listeners who are uh, all, there's a lot of Ridley Scott fans out there in our <laughs> audience. So go over to the Next Picture Show podcast, listen to that episode, but listen to all the other episodes too. It's a great show. Um, okay, Tasha, you brought a guest as well. I did. Uh, you want to introduce him? Yeah, Brian Bishop is a co-worker of mine. He's a senior editor at The Verge, and he's the writer of Being There, a running column on immersive entertainment and the changing technological face of recreation. I'm actually a really big fan of uh, Brian's writing, and particularly his writing about immersive entertainment, which uh, I really hope that he's right. And within, you know, 10 years, we're basically just all walking around with helmets strapped on living in AR. That's that's so do the I. Plan, I hope you're right, right too. Brian. <laughs> exactly. And and also just, you know, walking around like, you know, theme parks in the middle of a movie for no reason. Um, anyway, I mean, I'm first of all, thank you for having me on the show today, guys. I'm super excited, especially to talk about this movie in particular. Um, but uh, this should be a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, when I was a kid, I will say real quickly, it was my dream to have a house with an alien's room, which in retrospect is kind of like immersive entertainment for aliens. I just did not realize it at the time. Wait, wait, what would an alien's room look like? Would it just be like made out of mesh metal and dripping all the time? Uh, I think the idea when I was a kid was I would walk in and there would be, it's kind of like the, uh, I don't know what minute it is, but it's the moment where they kind of find the the one victim that's been, you know, you know, hewn to the wall with the resin who says, kill me, kill me, kill me. It was kind of like that room because that's a nice thing you want in your house. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are, how long have I been working with you? Are you a serial killer? Do you have a do you have a basement full of people you've impregnated with aliens? Or that was just your dream as a kid? <laughs> you know, one has to have aspirations. And I think, you know, it's important to like, you know, throw away limitations. Just go big. See where your mind takes you. Oh, my God, Brian. I'm, I've never said this to anybody before, but I'm kind of glad that your childhood dreams did not live up to reality. Most kids want to be firemen well, or ballerinas or astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> you, you wanted a basement full of screaming impregnated alien victims? I mean, I don't know they were screaming. They would just like be there so you could walk into the movie. Is that really <laughs> so wrong? Yeah, they're way too uh, debilitated to scream. Like there's yeah. no screaming in it. They're, they're just wanting to be killed. You know, that's much worse. There's not much point anyway since in space no one can hear you scream. <laughs> That's true. Well, Brian, I want to. My question then is, why? What's stopping you now? I mean, you're an adult. You can buy all the candy you want. Like, what's uh, just do it? 
you know, just don't have enough room in the house. That's the problem. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, plus, no one wants an aliens-themed bathroom, right? That'd be kind of like you know weird. No one wants that. You need like a proper room to it, right? Yeah. Well, it'd get everybody out of the bathroom quicker. You wouldn't have to worry as much about you know waiting to get in the shower. I don't, I don't know how many people live in your house, but um, sometimes that can be a problem. So, well, for people out there, anybody who has like a bunch of kids and they have trouble getting in their bathroom, aliens-themed bathroom that would get them in and out. So that's our advice. Uh, that's our home <laughs> decoration devi- advice for today. I'm just on alien having night. to renew the slime on a regular basis. Like I, I have enough trouble keeping my bathroom clean without also keeping it slimy. Well, yeah, but if you have kids, that'll be a chore for them. Dad, oh, I just, <laughs> I just put up the slime yesterday. Well, do you want your allowance or not? Check the chore wheel. You know, You're on slime that's... duty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. I, I mean, uh, my son's only five now, so it might be a little early for an alien-themed bathroom, but uh, I'll keep this in mind for the it's future. It's never too early for slime duty. <laughs> That's true. Boy, speaking of slime duty, this minute is very Burke-heavy, and uh, boy, he yep. the, the fullness of his plot has been revealed exactly how slimy he is. Yeah, and you know, he's got the uh, the, the flop sweat to go along with the sliminess. Uh, Bit, a bit nervous here in the scene. I was I, my first note for this minute is that this minute is primarily about performances. I think there's a lot of interesting choices going on. With I guess there's four key characters in this minute, uh, really three, but then we get the old we get a little color with with Hudson here and there too. But I wanted to say, you know, we got Ripley, the steely Ripley, throwing down the plot at, at um, Burke. So we got Ripley right in. She's you know, last time you were on Tasha, we were talking a lot about uh, Ripley coming into her own. And, and at the time you were on, she was way up, not into her own at all. She was really uh, not the Ripley that we knew from Alien. Well, here we're fully, we're fully in with Ripley. She's she's got it together. She just went through an extremely traumatic experience, but now she's able to lay down exactly what was behind that experience, who was involved, and this with nobody else really aware of what she knows. Right. I, 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 I assume that we all figure that she's the only one that really knew what Burke's uh, plan was in the first place, right? Well, I mean, I don't think she knew in the first place. I think she's she's figured it out, no. like, literally in the last few minutes. Yeah, sorry. I, yeah, I meant that, that. That's what I meant. The, from the point that uh, uh, Bishop tells her that he, di- he didn't want to uh, get rid of the face huggers, that was the point. But she never really seemed to share that with anybody else, right? It's possible that it was just a suspicion, uh, you know. It was just sort of a feeling that he was slimy, like up until, up until uh, the rubber chickens were actually coming for. Her. And the guns were removed from the room. That's really suspicious. There, it's like, well, I guess an accident could have taken some kind of accident could have taken place to release a face hugger. But what are you moving my gun for? Yeah, was, I remember like watching this scene when I was uh, the, like way back when I first saw the film when I was younger. And I, I did love how, you know, you felt like she was kind of like putting it all together in real time. Right. We all kind of knew he was slimy. Everybody kind of like knew he was not a great guy. And nothing really kind of like lets her figure out this really elaborate plan about killing them and quarantine and all this kind of stuff. But it's so satisfying to have everybody kind of like turn against him in mass. I really didn't care. Yeah, this is actually a big Agatha Christie moment now that I think about it. She's got all of the players in the room and she's pointing out the guilty party and and everybody's immediately turning on him. I mean, it does have that feeling of like a drawing room mystery. It's just a drawing room mystery where the detective is soaking wet and, uh, you know, covered covered with sweat and slime because she's just been in the middle of a sprinkler explosion and an alien attack. Yeah, I will say just uh, one point, though, that I don't... Hicks doesn't seem to be immediately 
uh, turning on Burke. And I think that that's an interesting choice. That's one of the choices I wanted to talk about. Whether it be in the writing, directing, or in the performance, we get this moment where Hicks is hesitant to go along with her story. He's like, I, I don't know. And I think that's interesting because how naive can you be? I mean, at this point, it seems pretty obvious. What she's saying is true. And not to mention that it's, it's your friend Ripley, Hicks. That's your closest bud uh, so far in the movie. You seem to trust her more than anybody else. I think it's kind of endearing that we're getting a Hicks here that is uh, unable to believe that someone could do something like this. That's what I think is happening. That's what I think the choice is about. Uh, it might be Michael Bean. I don't know if it's really in the, in the text as much as it is in the performance, but uh, I guess we do have to, you know, just as a function of the story here, we do have to have one moment of hesitation. Somebody has to hesitate for a minute just to give it a little bit more suspense before they just dive in and try to execute them, you know? So uh, I think it's a nice choice there. And I think we get an interesting performance from Riser here uh, as well. Uh, I don't know if you guys, did you guys detect any break in his performance? As in Burke is clearly trying to play this off like this is all bullshit, but did you guys detect a moment? There's a moment there where he kind of raises his eyebrow as Ripley's throwing down the plan for him, where he looks slightly impressed. Like he kind of breaks and goes, okay, you, fit, you did figure it all out. And I think he slips out of his performance. I don't know if you guys noticed that at all, did you? There's definitely that moment of like a, of a glassy-eyedness where he kind of like, you know, stops off the, off the uh, like, you know, what about whatever routine, which then pivots into his moment of like, you know, oh, this is just sad and delusional, you guys. Um, but there is like this kind of like strange, strange kind of like brief moment. I actually want to go back to Hicks real quick because I think that is a brief character moment because I was always struck earlier in the film Hicks is reluctant to take command of this unit after shit goes down. He's not necessarily the guy that's anxious to do that. And I think there's something about him, like you said, realizing somebody would do this. Like this upends his his you know worldview a little bit. I feel like where it's like you know they're partnering you know with the company, but that's going on. And this is like everything is just the worst possible scenario. I do feel like it's you know he doesn't want to go to this place mentally. He doesn't want to accept what this means. It's kind of not the way he's been wired and trained. Yeah, for me, the Hicks moment here is uh, it, it's a moment of responsibility. Like everybody else can feel free to act on emotion. And Ripley doesn't seem to be acting so much on emotion. She's putting the pieces together, but he's not like she's not really directly under his command. He's to me, this moment of kind of hesitation and thinking it through is him thinking through what he has to do to be responsible to his soldiers. Because if he turns on him and says, we're killing him, they're going to kill him. So he has to weigh that responsibility. Now, he he does it pretty briefly. I think as reluctant as he might be, he's still a man of action. And he's going to jump into it pretty quickly here. But I think that he feels the responsibility of like whatever I say is going to have an impact on this guy's a very immediate impact on this guy's life. For me, the, the Burke moment where he kind of uh, raises his eyebrows, I don't see an admiration there. I see him desperately trying to figure out what his play is uh, because he's really kind of out of options here. And when he come, when he comes up with the, well, uh, this is just sad. It, it's, it's a really weak play i don't know how much you guys have played social games uh like werewolf or mafia or all of their like new modern equivalents avalon and the resistance and stuff like that but there's a look that you get on people's faces sometimes when or secret hitler is another one if uh when you figure out what somebody's up to and accuse them directly to their face like here are here's all the evidence you're lying i can prove it you sometimes get that that sort of moment of 
uh, before they launch into whatever their defense is. And that's what I'm seeing here. Yeah, I think you're right on the money with both of those. Uh, I hadn't really thought about the Hicks Hicks's responsibility before. He has like an administrative responsibility here. He's got to make sure nobody goes overboard. And it, yet it is brief because he does know that this is obviously what's the, the truth. Like he knows that Ripley is, is telling the story as it is, but he's got to take at least a beat to think it. You know, we can't just react we immediately to this. So uh, I think you're right on the money with that. And I think you're definitely right on the money with with Burke, too, because now that I think about it, when he starts into his paranoid delusion spiel, it sounds for one second like he might have some, like, detail to add to the argument. Like, he says, you guys are, you guys, this is paranoid. This is, and he sounds like he's about to go into a this is how it really is kind of thing. Like where he might have some details yet. Yeah, he's out of those. He doesn't have any more. His sales pitch is gone. The thing that he's been writing throughout this whole movie where he's able to do his used car salesman routine is gone. So he just goes, it's really sad. You know, that's like the weakest place to go with that. Like it's, it's really kind of sad. I feel sorry for you guys. You know, It's really terrible. So yeah, I think you're right. I think he was out of options and trying to find some desperately trying to find some. And he just didn't. I, have them. I just went to a very Trump place. I'm sorry. When he, when he says that it's, it's sad, I just see that like in all caps in a, you know, accusations have no validity whatsoever. Sad. You know, it's, this is a fake news moment. I, I hate to say those, I hate to say those words, but that's basically what he's saying here. He doesn't have any nuance to argue for himself, so he just yells fake news, and uh, yeah, well, they're not having it here. Yeah. The difference, though, I think in this moment is that when he reverts to sad, and you know he's got no cards to play, it is so satisfying because you know we know that he's the, that used car salesman throughout the entire movie from the first time he shows up and talks about you know being a suit, not being a suit. And um, it's like so great for like the bullshit to stop finally. It's like you're like, OK, cool. Finally, like we've reached that moment. And this as an audience member. I kind of feel like it's this great moment of, of satisfying triumph. And, and we get that, um, you know, accentuated by Hudson dropping in for another colorful metaphor, you know, stick a gun in his face and tell him he's dog meat. You know, I think that's definitely there for audience satisfaction. Trying to hit, you know, Cameron, that's that's a Cameron thing to do. You, you have this beat. That, that the audience finds satisfying and you take it up one more notch. Like I, I, that's definitely a Cameron thing to do. So we got Hudson coming right in, you know, he's, he's been all, you know, from the beginning of this minute, he's, um, I guess it was into the last minute. He's been all about just uh, not even thinking this through. Let's deal with this guy right now. I love how Paxton manages to get a uh, kind of belligerent whine into every single line in the movie. Even when he's threatening to kill somebody to their face, he, he still sounds kind of whiny. Yeah. <laughs> You're dog meat, pal. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's quite a performance. <laughs> can't, can't say enough about old Bill Paxton. I love the composition of the first shot of this minute where we've got just about everybody we can fit into the camera, uh, on the camera. You know, we've, we've just got this like laid out room of people. So you can, you're kind of looking at the back of Riser's head, but you're still just sort of seeing everybody play out their reactions. Uh, and you've got Sigourney Weaver like to the far left, kind of diminished. Like she appears smaller than Hicks. 
Um, but you've got Newt curled up, uh, pretty much in fetal position next to her, looking even smaller. And uh, you've got uh, Vasquez just kind of glowering at the the far right. You just you have a like a sense of everybody's character just in this still frame uh, that you can see. And as you go a little bit forward, you get Gorman kind of like leaning out and looking like he's just sort of listening and taking it all in. Uh, it's just it's a nice little character beat for everybody, even when they're not talking. Yeah, this is one of those compositional moments that Mitch and I have talked about a few times where Cameron seems to be channeling Howard Hawks a little bit and his ability to, to cram characters into a frame in a meaningful way, in a, in a way that's pleasing to the eye and not uh, too busy. And you get character beats in single shots. And, you know, we talk about how Hawks was challenged by the, by the one three three aspect ratio and still was able to do it. But Cameron seems to have understood what, what Hawks was doing, you know, in that bit of film grammar, and and I do find it interesting that you talk that you um, read Ripley as in a diminutive position, which is true. I, I kind of thought of her somehow as having the um, upper hand in the scene, and, and she does, but she grows into that. Right? You're talking about she's off in the distance and a, a bit diminutive, but we have to we use editing to bring her into the upper hand, like visually speaking. So I think that that's uh, another piece of good editing that we get here from Ray Lovejoy and, and good choices from Cameron. But yeah, she would be, you know, she just got attacked by this face hugger. She was just put in this extremely traumatic position. I like that we keep her there compositionally for just a moment before we actually bring her forward and, and let her take over the scene completely. Well, it's nice. It also speaks to just what she's doing at this point, right? Like, you know, Wayland Yutani, like everything that she's kind of like, you know, coming up against and kind of striking down by going against Paul Reiser's character is kind of like taking down the establishment in a weird, you know, heavy handed way to express it. But, um, you know, so like, that's like the, that's, she's climbing up that, up that hill in that, in this scene, in that conversation, um, you know, and the way it ends where like, we are looking at riser kind of like at a down angle, just in his desperation by the end, it's another like really satisfying, you know, turn that happens in this, in this minute. So we get, when we get Ripley fully for it in a, in a nice close up. Um, we get the big line, right? This is one of the big lines, quotable lines of the movie, wouldn't you say? I mean, there's a lot of them in this movie, but this has always been one of my favorite ones. I guess it's really contextually only only can be used in relation to aliens, right? I mean, have you ever been able to pull this line out in a everyday conversation like some of the other lines in Aliens? <laughs> Uh, not so much, I think. <laughs> but now I feel compelled to try. I'm like, what kind of like real life scenarios could I do this? In? Maybe line at the grocery store, somebody like cuts me off, or how could I really cause some problems with uh, talking about fucking me over for a goddamn percentage? I, I want to integrate this into my life more because I think it could it could add some value. What, do, what would you say to this person in the grocery store? Like, you know, I don't know who's worse. You don't see them fucking each other over for a place in the grocery you line. Don't see them fucking each what, other. You know, that could work. That could work. You know, maybe like who else? Are, who's this other people? You're like, what's going on here? Other people in the uh, the line fucking each other over to get to the Reese's Pieces and the, uh, the concession area. <laughs> or like Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving sales, you know what I mean? You're, you know, fucking each other over for a goddamn Xbox, you know, just you can. <laughs> Have you ever watched a video of a Black Friday sale? There is a lot of people fucking each other over for a goddamn Xbox. Yeah, there. it looks it looks very similar <laughs> to the next few minutes of aliens we're going to get, to be honest. Do not tell Black Friday shoppers that they can get up into the ceiling. It, it'll all be over, man. It'll be game over. Oh, man. It's only a matter of time before we get, like, a, a video of, of, like, Walmart employees with trackers, <laughs> you know, standing at the, standing at the doors. Over, 
They're dog meat, pal. All right, check them out. Check them out We're in doomed. short, controlled bursts, guys. Get to the registers right now. <laughs> yeah, they all have pricing guns strapped to there. Yeah. Anyway, um, but you know, my question about this line is: don't we don't we think that these uh, aliens would fuck each other over for a goddamn percentage? Like if if they had evolved to the level of having a monetary system and so on. I mean, come on. They, they would be extremely ruthless in the corporate sector, don't you think? Well, they're like insects. I mean, they work They work together. They all have the same goals. If the goal is to get a goddamn percentage, given what we see in some of the later chapters in the film franchise, maybe some of them would evolve to like the specific physical or uh, intellectual capability of like your your purpose is to lay eggs my purpose is to impregnate humans your this other guy's purpose is to fuck uh, aliens over for a goddamn percentage like it would be it would be an evolved alien (laughs) with some specific gland for fucking aliens over for a goddamn percentage what gland would that be um the fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage gland were you not listening come on I mean, normally we name these things after whoever discovers them, so I don't know. You could call it the Vasquez-Hicks gland. I don't know. I was going to go with the Robinson gland, but okay. Hey, now. You named it. No, no, no. You named it. That's, that's, not an, that's a celebration. That's not a fence. Well, to be fair, we couldn't, shouldn't call it Vasquez-Hicks. We should, we should call it the Robinson-Riser gland because, you know, he, I may have discovered it, but like, he invented the concept. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, it, we know, um, you know, spoiler for the next couple of minutes or, or next week. We know that Paul, you know, Burke is going to get killed by an alien uh, by what? one of the xenomorphs. But let's say, let's say, for instance, Burke was face hugged, um, and uh, an alien gestated inside of him and took on some of his DNA. Would he develop the uh, Robinson Riser gland? Would that alien come out fucking each other over for goddamn percentage? Oh my god, I'm just, <laughs> I'm picturing a prototypical uh, Ridley Scott alien. You know, your alien. But with Riser's hairdo, his like his eighties yeah. I just want to see an alien selling Ripley in that first scene in the film. But instead of Riser, it's an alien. It's just like with Riser's voice, though, just kind of like you know, telling her like you know, everything's gonna be good. Hey, so, ki- hey. hey kiddo, it's all gonna be good. Don't worry, kiddo. It's all right. You got that job in the at the docking bay. That's great. Sure, you'll be happy. Handing her one of those like glass ID phone cards, except it's just dripping with slime. <laughs> It's like real Giger-esque, you know, made out of bones. <laughs> Got little skulls all over it with little smiley faces. Suddenly I'm picturing Existence, the Cronenberg movie. Oh, Drop that into another orifice of some kind and it dials him right up on the video phone. Movie was so okay. So unnecessary. <laughs> what is wrong with you, Cronenberg? Well, do you guys have anything else for this minute? Uh, I think the one thing I wanted to bring up that I think is interesting is uh, the whole plot that Ripley describes where it heavily involves um, sabotaging freezers uh, is just interesting to me in the wake of Alien Covenant. And uh, I don't want to give anything away, but its ending pretty heavily revolves around the sabotaging of freezers. And there's just an implied helplessness involved in those freezers that I think comes up over and over visually, aesthetically, conceptually. Like starting with the very first moments of Alien, where you see people kind of being born out of them, you know, in this like weak baby mouse, eyes not open yet kind of state. I think the whole franchise has focused really hard on just how vulnerable people are in those freezers, the old freezerinos, 
And it's become a plot point that it's really easy to get to people when they're there. So the fact that we bring it up here is like a, as a central part of uh, Burke's plan is just interesting to me. Well, you know, I wasn't, I was thinking about bringing this up, but I kind of wanted to see if it would come up organically, but it kind of has now. Um, this is a little off subject, but kind of on subject. I was watching the, the commentary on the Blu-ray for this minute or these, this block of minutes. I can't remember if it came up right here or not, but uh, James Cameron is speaking over this part of the movie uh, on the commentary, and he's talking about Alien 3 specifically and how he wasn't really a big fan of it. He gives a lot of caveats. Oh, well, I understand the instinct and blah, blah, blah. I, I didn't really like what they did with uh, Newton and, uh, and uh, Hicks. But one thing he says is that he says, you know, uh, though, I'm sure Ridley didn't like a lot of things I did with aliens. And then he says, uh, I think he just I think he probably just wishes he would have been the one to make it. <laughs> I thought that was a really strange thing to say in that it sounded real catty to me in a way. It sounded like James Cameron was saying Ridley Scott might be jealous of aliens. But now that you say that. In Covenant, he kind of uses an idea from Aliens, right? The sabotaging of the freezers. It makes you go, wow, maybe he was really into Aliens or some of the ideas that he ended up borrowing from it. Um, of course, we could all think of it as a nice community, the Aliens director's community, and they share with each other <laughs> and so on. But <laughs> when you mentioned that, I, I felt like I should bring that up just as a fun... Uh, we like to talk about the directors, you know, in their... Uh, personality sometimes on the show so i thought that was an interesting moment maybe i'm reading it wrong maybe he's not saying that really scott was jealous of him but it's kind of hard not to think it was a little bit of that at least given that it's cameron it's very difficult to not read that into it but uh right. <laughs> i remember that commentary i think at the time it was just like oh he just wanted ownership of it because i feel cameron always feels that he you know like the sting of losing ownership of Terminator, right? I feel like that's, he always like feels the, you know, the loss of ownership of that kind of thing. But I'm also really intrigued by the idea of a, a, an aliens director collective. Like, do they get together for dinner? Do they hang out? Can I have them to my aliens room at my house? Like, I'm very interested in this idea. Oh, well, all they would do is criticize your aliens room though. And they but would nitpick okay. it. The notes, test. the notes, good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That, it's fun to think about. And you're right about Cameron. I hadn't even really thought about, you know, I mean, it's clear that he feels a sense of ownership over Terminator, and he should. But the fact that he continues to attach himself, um, if not just to say things about it in the press, you know, good, positive things about these uh, subsequent Terminator films in the press, that makes you go, man, he really wants to make sure he's still got his toe in the water there. <laughs> like, he's saying really good things about some pretty bad movies just to, I don't know, I think to connect, keep himself connected to it. So, <laughs> And now he's now here he is. He's running full speed at making another one or, or having a big part in making another one at least. So, yeah, you're right about that. He does have that sense of ownership for sure. And Ridley got Alien back. Yeah. So hopefully Terminator, will, well, we'll see how the Terminator return compares to the Scott Alien return. I listened to that yeah. commentary too, and kind of what I what I thought more than thinking about uh, like ownership and jealousy was just I like I I certainly feel him like having created these characters that are so so vulnerable and passionate and interesting. Uh, I really understand him being kind of depressed at somebody just discarding them, but I do think that getting upset about it is uh, is a little odd given that. It was motivated by really practical concerns. You know, the actress that played Newt was 
because <laughs> significantly older and Bean was unavailable because of other film commitments. So they, they couldn't be in the movie. It wasn't like somebody like discarded them, well, like Fincher discarded them casually uh, or, you know, just decided that we didn't need them in the story. He, he couldn't bring them back. So I would think that Cameron, maybe Cameron doesn't uh, understand that because <laughs> Cameron is used to throwing $250 million at whatever problem comes into his, his purview. Um, but it does seem like an odd uh, complaint to level at that film, unless you're approaching it from a, a fan perspective rather than a director's perspective, which is certainly understandable. I mean, I think for me, I've always thought there could have maybe been another more creative way to deal with that problem. But at the same time, they're clearly the, the final product that is Alien Three is clearly a piece, of, big piece of cinematic nihilism, right? So why not just kill the kid and the good guy? You know, at the beginning, it sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Personally, I don't enjoy that movie. <laughs> like, so it it isn't a story choice issue as much. I'm starting to realize as I've frequently discussed that movie during this podcast, uh, I'm starting to kind of reconcile the fact that it's like, oh, I, I respect the choice. I respect the tonal shift. I respect that they, it actually, what you're talking about, the practical concerns of not bringing, being able to bring Carrie Hinn or Michael Bean back actually play into the tone of the movie. So it works pretty perfectly, but I just can't engage with that movie. So that's what it really comes down to, to me. It's just not my cup of tea, but I don't criticize the choice anymore uh, as much. I just don't like that it happens. So you're right. That's, that's me from the fan perspective. I guess that's what you're saying. That's an interesting take. Yeah, it's like I think for me, it always uh, it always frustrated me. I enjoy Alien Three for what it is, but I think that choice always frustrated me because it kind of undercut the you know the ending of what Aliens was you know kind of about you know right like bringing them together, bringing that family unit together was kind of core to what Cameron was trying to get out there with this film. It seemed like, uh, and for that to be just like be thrown away so readily, I'm sure it plays into the nihilism, and 100 percent agree with that. But it's also it's you know sequels do have impacts on the films that they, you know, that preceded them. And I think that's one of those cases where it felt like it, if you think about that movie and hold it in your head when you're watching Aliens, it kind of makes that ending of Aliens a little bit less than. Obviously, this is a minute way further down in the film. but Well, in my personal case, i I really good at compartmentalizing these kind of things. It doesn't have any effect on Aliens to me. Like, I don't think about Alien 3 when I'm watching Aliens. At least not... Um, to where it affects my um, absorption of the story as it's going on. But uh, I'm lucky in that sense. For a lot of people, it does. A lot of, For a lot of people, subsequent material, prequels and so on, ruin things for them. And I feel really bad for people like that. I'm glad I'm, I'm I feel blessed that the, uh, that the uh, Star Wars prequels don't have any effect on my uh, experience with the original trilogy of Star Wars, for instance. So, uh, I don't know. I guess it teaches their own, but you're right. I mean, it, it does have a rippling effect for a lot of viewers. And, uh, you know, I don't know, but you got to take your cinematic risks too. You got to take your story risks too. You can't really worry about that too much. It's a push and pull between, if you're making a sequel, between um, homaging or, or having respect for the original material and then branching out on your own. So we see that a lot in Aliens for sure, where he showed a great deal of respect to Alien, especially in the first 20 minutes of the movie. And then he went into Cameron Land and made his own movie. So, and it works. It's a good balance here. And it's questionable, I think, whether the, the Alien 3 balance is really there. 
but I don't know. We're talking more about Alien 3 today than I thought we would be, for sure. <laughs> Just to loop it back to this minute to close it out, we're, we're talking a lot about Newt. It's really hard to not think about Alien 3 when we're watching, as Brian says, this family unit come together, this story about how these two people managed to survive. When we're looking at this minute, one of the things that struck me most watching it the first time is just the the tragic anomaly of Newt being present for all of this. You know, because of the situation, it's not like they can send her away. Like, you know, go to your room. The adults need to talk about murdering the guy who tried to murder us right now. She has to be there because they have to all be in the same space to protect each other. But what that means is this little traumatized girl is listening to this conversation about how somebody plotted to implant her with an alien, murder almost everybody else in the room, uh, harvest the alien and turn it into a weapon. And now, because he didn't, he didn't manage to succeed, we're going to murder him. Like, that is not necessarily a conversation you would normally want a, what, nine-year-old uh, in on. But here she is in the middle of the room, yeah. silently watching and listening, because the situation deems that she cannot be sent away. And, you know, Ripley, characteristically, we've talked in previous minutes about how Ripley doesn't mince words with Newt at any point. She never tries to make her feel like everything's okay. When, when it's not okay, she tells her. She said, we're in trouble, Newt. Let's, we got to do something. And in this minute, she, um, you know, as she's laying out Burke's plan, she specifically says that they were going to impregnate, you know, that Burke was going to impregnate Newt. Like right in front of her. And when we get this like steely glare that she's shooting daggers, she's shooting daggers right through Burke, you know, uh, Newt is. So uh, you just get the idea. She's just all grown up. I mean, there's a little girl there, of course. But man, she's already been through so much. There's just no point. You're right. that Logistically, there's nothing you can do about it. You're, she's going to have to be there for all this. But, you know, she's she's um, calloused, too. I mean, she's seen so much. She's seen more than they have. You know, so... Uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting choice, you know, to have this kid in this movie. Really, it's there's so much rich material to be taken from it, and um, uh, yeah, I think we'll talk more about that actually in the next minute too. Brian, do you have any final thoughts? I was going to follow up to that one thing real quick. It's uh, John, we were talking earlier before we started recording about the director's cut and that that newt glare, those shooting daggers. It's a moment that actually plays a lot stronger when you see the the before newt. You know, the Hadley's Hope Newt, where everything was like happy and fine. You kind of like get the sense of just how much she has changed, how much she is calloused mentally, uh, you know, in that moment. Uh, and it kind of like brings everything together in terms of, you know, her shift and how she's kind of been, you know, been been broken, you know, as a, as a child in this context. And I think kind of sets up, does that look, sets up the next, you know, section of the film and how she and Ripley will kind of get past that. Yeah. All right. Well, if that's all we got for today, uh, Brian, you want to let the audience know where they can find you online? Sure. Um, uh, my writing is on TheVerge.com. I'm also on Twitter at BC Bishop. And Tasha? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson, and you can also find my writing at, uh, <clears throat> and you can also find my writing at TheVerge.com. And you can find us at AlienMinute.com on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. And uh, it's Monday, so we always like to thank uh, Alex Robinson and Pete the Retailer over at Star Wars Minute for loaning us this concept and letting us uh, make a show about Alien using their uh, Star Wars show idea. Well, that was weirdly worded. Okay, well, that'll do it for Minute number 96. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute 97.